Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you that songs can get to us, speak to us, help us in worship, so that we're now, God, focused on you and ready to hear what your word might say today. God, that's where we're at. We thank you so much for that. And God, we pray now that your word would speak to us really truthfully. God, that we would see in this passage that our Father in heaven is communicating to us. Lord, increase our faith. Help our unbelief. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you would, please turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. If you didn't bring a Bible, you can use the Black Pew Bible there in front of you. I believe it's page 924. I may be off on that. 924. I remember when I was in school and playing ball, I used to get to spend a lot of times with guys. One of the great, great things about sports is you get to build relationships with people and friendships and when we would travel to away games we'd have some long long bus rides and we'd be on the on the bus forever and it would <clears throat> provide for a lot of opportunity to sleep with your head against a window but it also provide a lot of opportunity to just sit in the middle aisle and or sit in the in, in the aisle and be able to talk to a teammate and I can recall many many occasions sitting with my roommate or or, or somebody that I had just spent the, spent the night with. and you know, So we, were, we had already been connecting and bonding, and so we would, we would keep talking on the ride. And they knew that I was a believer in Jesus. So oftentimes our conversation would go to, do they believe? And we'd kind of go back and forth and sharing our lives and talking about how we sin and we need to be forgiven and I've had that conversation many times with people back when I was in college and yet even now living here in Fairdale. I know people spread all over our town that, that I've talked Jesus with and, you know, many just don't believe. They don't see it the way we see it. They don't know God. And I think you know, too, regardless of what people may say, that there is a lot of unbelief in and around us. Now, people may give lip service to the fact that they uh, want to call themselves a Christian or have a Bible in their home, or if they have to check a box for some reason, they may check that they are a believer. But the truth is, is that many people do not really believe. And I mean believe in a way that their heart is bowed down and therefore their life is now being oriented around what the Lord that you believe in says. And that's what it means to believe. There's a lot of unbelief. And today's passage is where Jesus recognizes that in this town of Nazareth, which happens to be his hometown, if you can only imagine, there is such unbelief and it bothers him he's taken back by it he marvels at it 
I want you to read with me, if you will, at Mark chapter 6, the first six verses. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. This is one of those passages that often is seen as kind of like a bridge passage to get us into some of the bigger stories. Initially, when I had prepared, started preparing for this, I thought about combining it with verses 7 through 13 because I didn't want to be in Mark forever, but I think we need to deal with unbelief. But before we start to unpack unbelief, I want to take a few minutes to talk about belief. I want you to be reminded here again today that belief is what it's all about. You must believe in God and His Son Jesus who died for your sins in order to be a child of God. It all comes down to belief. Without faith, I'm going to use faith and belief interchangeably here, the same thing. Without a faith in Christ, you are still in your sins, not forgiven. Without a faith in Christ, you will not escape the judgment of God. You will have to face the judgment of God. Without a faith in Christ, you have no chance or hope of going to heaven. Without a faith in Christ, you are guaranteed to go to hell. It all comes down to faith. God's Word makes that clear. It's that way throughout the whole Word of God. This is not works-based. Whether you are the best person in your family or the worst, you can go to heaven by faith in Christ. And whether you are the best person in your family or the worst, you will go to hell apart from faith in Christ. The Bible communicates this with great clarity. We're not confused about that. It all comes down to faith. Perhaps you have heard before John 3.16 that says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whoever, what? Believes. Whoever believes in him will not die or perish. See, that's what you get if you don't believe. You perish. But if you believe in him, meaning who he is and what he's done, you will have eternal life. What a great verse. The Bible is about belief. By faith, we can move a mountain. 
By faith, our sins are forgiven. By faith, healing comes. By faith, we enter into a relationship with God in which he becomes our father. The Bible says that without a faith in Christ, God is not our father. He is indeed fatherly toward us. He still treats you well and is good to you, but you have not wanted him to be your father. You would rather be in your sins. It is only through faith in Jesus for who he is and what he's done that you become a child of God. Belief is awesome. Belief is the gift of God to people that they would trust in Christ for forgiveness of sins and salvation. You might say that my whole goal, my whole purpose in this sermon and every other sermon that we preach here is that you would believe. That you would believe. Not that you would be a better person but that you would believe, and I'm trusting that by faith, God will make you a better person. But the issue is belief. And since we have come to believe from God through his word that it all comes down to belief, and belief is so important, now we can look over at the seriousness and the error and the waywardness that there is in unbelief. To not believe in Christ is to be wrong. I mean, very wrong very wrong is to look God in the face and say you disagree with him and to have God say well we both can't be right unbelief is heavy and it's more common than we realize in our passage today we have Jesus coming to his hometown do you like your hometown what is your hometown? Do you ever get to go back there? Obviously, for many of you, all your hometown is probably here, Fairdale. But do you like your hometown? Do you like the place where you were raised? Do you love to go back there? Have you ever gone back to see a teacher that impacted you and said, thank you? Are you comfortable there? Do they like you? Do they welcome you? Does it feel good to go back there? I remember a couple years ago, I was just really thankful for where God had put me in life, and I called up my high school basketball coach. I graduated high school in 1998, so it's been a while for this old guy to have been back to high school. And I haven't been back there in a while, but I called him up, and I didn't have his number. I had to find it. Had not heard his vo voice in such a long time. But I just called him up to say, thank you. Thanks for teaching me. Thanks for impacting me. Thanks for teaching me so many things through basketball that made me uh, a man. I got some fond memories for my hometown, where I lived and where I grew up, and places we hung out and things like that. How about you? I know you don't think much about Jesus' hometown, but he had one. The Bible uses this very word. He went away from there, came to his hometown. He had his disciples with him. He did what he always does on the Sabbath. Verse 2, he began to teach in the synagogue. And as he began to teach in the synagogue, those who heard it were astonished. They, they, they could not believe the type of teaching that they were hearing. Now, for us that read the Bible, we're used to this because we hear him teach a lot. And the response is always this way. You need to know the difference between spirit-filled preaching and not spirit-filled preaching. You need to know the difference between when God is speaking through someone and when somebody's not. And there's a big difference. 
You need to know when the truth is being communicated and when the truth is not being communicated. You need to know that when the purpose of the sermon is, try, is to impress or just try to make you a better person, you need to be able to call that baloney and see right through it. And you need to be able to know when the Bible's message is being communicated and the Holy Spirit's using it and kind of stepping on your toes and bothering you and in a good way making you a little bit uncomfortable and causing you to realize that you're not right. You need Jesus. You need to trust in him and repent of your sins. You need to recognize that. Well, every time Jesus taught, that's what it was. He is God. So when God preaches, it's the best sermon anybody's ever heard. That's why we love the Word of God. And Jesus is here in the synagogue, and he's speaking. And, and when he's doing that, the people are like, what? Who is this? We've never heard anybody like this. Normally, people just stand up in the synagogue, and they read their little things, and it's kind of monotonous, and there's not really nothing to it, and there's no the power of the grace of God to change a life. There is no, I'm not what I used to be, but I'm not what I'm going to be, but praise the Lord, he's working in me. My sins have been forgiven. He will hold me fast. He will hold me fast because my Savior loves me so much. This sinner, he will not let me go. He'll forgive me my sins. Nobody says that type of stuff in the synagogue. Nobody says that. There's no hope of the gospel. There is no forgiveness of sins. There is no, I've been washed by the blood of Christ because my God died for me. There's none of that. And so when Jesus stands up and starts to really proclaim the truth that a Savior is coming and a Savior is here, in a few minutes we're going to look in Luke chapter 4 and you'll see some more of those connections. But when Jesus does that, people are like, what? So they've heard truth, and they've heard a good message, and they've heard the Savior of the world say, I am the Savior of the world. And they've heard the Savior of the world say, the Savior of the world is here. They've heard the Savior of the world say, the Savior of the world is here for you. They've heard all of that. And yet they don't believe. They're like, wow, he's different. Man, we've never heard a preacher that good. Man, that was outstanding. They still didn't believe. Nazareth was an interesting place, y'all. You might recall in John chapter 1, when Jesus is calling the disciples, do you remember that? And you know that, you probably know, that the first four were Peter, Andrew, James, and John, right? They were fishermen. And he found Andrew, and Andrew found his brother Peter, and he found James and John, the brothers, together. But then also in chapter 1 of John, you have Jesus calling Philip and Nathaniel. Do you remember that one? And Philip says, we have found the Savior. And you remember what Nathaniel said in John chapter 1? Well, who is it? He says, Jesus of Nazareth. You remember Nathaniel's answer? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He viewed Nazareth as a town that was not really well known. People weren't proud to go there. People weren't moving into Nazareth. In their free time, that's not where they went. But this was Jesus' hometown. And I'm sure Jesus was proud of it. Hometown means what? Where you grew up, where you were reared, where you ran the streets, where you went to schools, where you hung out, where you played ball. That's what your hometown means. That's where Jesus spent his time growing up. Let me remind you that we didn't know about Jesus 
we don't, we don't know much about Jesus in the first 30 years of his life. The Bible says very little about Jesus' upbringing. We have a lot about Jesus as a baby, right? The virgin-born Jesus. Then we have absolutely nothing until we have one single story of him being 12 years old where his family makes a, 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 a trip to Jerusalem and he gets left there at 12 years old. One story and nothing else until he comes on the scene in the beginning of the Gospels at roughly 30 years of age to begin his ministry. And his ministry was only three years. That's all we know about Jesus. Now, we know a lot, but that's it. So whatever was happening in his hometown, we don't really know. But we know that he was God. We know that he's the son of God. We know that Mary was his true mother and Joseph was his stepdad. Jesus was raised in a family with a bunch of half-brothers and sisters. Amen, he should be able to connect with so many of us. We know Jesus grew up in Nazareth. But since he is God and the Savior of the world, he never sinned, right? He couldn't have died for our sins if he sinned. He is sinless. So there was never a time where he back-talked his mom. There was never a time where he got kicked out of school. There was never a time when he stole from the gas station. There was never a time where he hooked up with the neighbor's girl. There was never a time where he did this or never a time where he did that. Jesus was holy and pure always. And we don't know many stories, but he was. It's the only option you have when you're God. So, Nazareth, for whatever they view him as, view him as, had to have, as interesting, good guy. And this is what makes this passage even more challenging or disturbing, if you will. Jesus comes back to his hometown here at roughly age 30. He teaches in the synagogue, and his teaching is certainly in line with what you would have expected. They ask a whole lot of questions. They're astonished by it, and yet they don't believe. They don't believe. J.C. Ryle says, never had any place on earth such privileges as Nazareth. For 30 years, the Son of God resided in this town. He went to and fro in its streets. For 30 years, he walked with God before the eyes of its inhabitants, living a blameless, perfect life. But it was all lost upon them. They don't believe. They don't. After he gets done speaking, they start to ask questions. They start to change the subject. They start to... Try to figure him out in ways that don't submit to him by what true belief and faith are. Jesus concludes, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. What that means is prophets usually get honor. You usually welcome that God has sent you somebody to tell you something, right? Don't you like it when all of a sudden you get this great blessing and somebody comes along and they just want to put their arm around you and say, you know what, I'm proud of you. You're doing a great job. You know what, I'm thankful for your friendship. You know what, thank you for helping me out. You know what, you're, you're, you're awesome and I'm, I'm just happy to know you. You like that. A prophet is certainly more than an encourager, but a prophet who comes to share the good news with you is seen as a good thing. And usually prophets get honor. 
But Jesus says they do get honor, except in a few places. And he says, not just the hometown, but he takes it a little bit further. Hometown, among relatives, and in his own house. In his own house. In your house is typically just your mom or your dad or both or and your brothers and sisters. That's it. And Jesus says here that he is not honored around his relatives. He is not honored around his brothers and sisters. He's not honored in Nazareth. And we are to see this as heartbreaking. Folks, Jesus is God and deserving of all honor and praise. Jesus deserves us to bow down and wash his feet and worship him. Jesus is our maker. And he recognizes here that he's not honored there. As a small point of application, I want to remind you that if you find yourself this day or this month or, or this year in a, in a season of life or in a setting of life or in a position of life where you are lonely as a Christian, maybe you can identify with Jesus in Nazareth. Jesus was not honored in Nazareth. He wasn't honored at the family reunions when all the relatives got together. He wasn't honored at dinner time when they sat around the table. They didn't see like he saw. They didn't believe. They didn't believe. Are you the only Christian in your family? Are you the only Christian in your extended family? Are you the only Christian in your street or on your neighborhood? Are you the only Christian in your hometown? Or does it feel that way? May you connect with Jesus and see here that he knows exactly what that feels like. He's been there. He's seen people doubt him. He's seen people not believe in him. He's seen people ask all these questions about him. He's seen people tell him that they're glad that that works for him, but it just doesn't work for them. He's seen them astonished at his teaching in the synagogue and then respond with, I'm still not buying it. Is that you? Well, take heart today that Jesus has been there too. And he will hold you fast, as we just sang, and he will not let you go. His grace is sufficient for you, and that he is always with you. Speaking again on this, our commentator Ryle says, There is comfort for true Christians who stand alone in their families and see all around them cleaving to the world. Let both remember that they are drinking the same cup as, that, as their beloved master. Let them remember that he too was despised by most of those who knew him best. Let them learn that the most, listen to this, let them learn that the utmost consistency of conduct will not make others adopt their views and opinions any more than it did the people of Nazareth. If you're waiting for your family to change because of how well behaved you are, you're probably going to wait forever. If you're waiting for everybody to have the same opinions that you do because of your conduct, it ain't happening. The Bible makes very clear that only God changes people's hearts and God changes people's hearts when somebody tells them about the life-changing work that Jesus did on the cross. If the gospel message is not communicated to someone, then God is not going to change their life. Somebody has to hear and believe in the cross of Christ in order to be changed. We have this here. This is where Jesus grew up. For 30 years, this is where he was. And at the end of it, he preaches in the synagogue, and they don't believe. Turn with me to Luke chapter 4. Luke's the next book. Luke chapter 4. 
similar passage, Jesus at Nazareth, not the same passage. Speaking about the unbelief of those in Nazareth, one author, Stein, says, this is fascinating. He says, the voice from heaven, as we see in Mark chapter 1, and the demons, as we see throughout Mark, as we saw just a couple weeks ago, they recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. But the people of Nazareth don't. They recognize him as only the Son of Mary, as the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, Simon, and the various unnamed sisters. Again, God has already said in Mark that this is the Son of God. He said it out of a voice out of heaven when he was baptized. The demons that have encountered him, every time he's encountered demons in Mark, to where he healed them out of the person, they had spoken that this is the Son of God. They recognized that. But his own family living with him would not believe that he is the Son of God. They recognized him as just another man. Luke chapter 4 I'm going to read a lot. I'm going to start at verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus is now reading the scriptures. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. They're wondering, what's he going to say about this awesome prophecy from the Old Testament? Verse 21, and he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Spirit of the Lord upon him anointed him to preach the good news to the poor, to set people free, to give sight to the blind, to do all of that great work is going to happen through Jesus. Jesus, folks, is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. If you read the Old Testament and anything's confusing to you, take heart that it makes sense through Christ. The Old Testament is not to teach you how you can be right with God through obedience. It's to teach you how much you cannot obey and that you need a Savior and Jesus is is that Savior. He fulfilled the Old, Test Old Testament so that everybody in the room who has broken the Old Testament can be forgiven of their sins and right with God. And he says this to them right there in the synagogue when he read that passage about the coming prophet, the coming Messiah, Savior. They, he sat down and it says that their, all their eyes were fixed on him because they wanted to know what he was going to say about it and he holds back nothing and he says, today this has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Do you see that? Same thing that's happening in Mark 6. They love his teaching. Wow, this guy's amazing. And then here it comes. Is not this Joseph's son? He said to them, doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you did at Capernaum do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his own in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up in three years and six months and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha and none of them was cleansed but only Naaman the Syrian. Now look here, verse 28. 
Let me remind you, they just loved him in verse 22, didn't they? In verse 22, all who spoke, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Now look back to verse 28. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. People can turn on you fast, can't they? They can turn on you fast. As soon as they know that what you believe means something for them too, they will turn on you fast. As soon as they, as soon as they know that your beliefs aren't self-help for you, they are life and death, hell escaping, heaven graciously entering. As soon as they realize that, they will, they will turn on you. Verse 30, but passing through their midst, he went away. We see here in Luke 4 that those people loved his message if it didn't really mean anything to them. They loved his message if they didn't have to change or respond or quit doing some things and start doing some things. They loved his message if it didn't mean that they had to absolutely uh, up, upend their allegiance and move it away from obedience to being a good person. Just, they're fine the way they are and yet turn their allegiance now to the Lord Jesus Christ and set their eyes upon him and say, Jesus, wherever you're going, I'll go. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do. You want me to stop doing these sinful things, I'll stop doing these sinful things. You want me to start behaving this way, I'll start behaving this way. If they if once they came to understand that the preaching of the Savior was binding on them, that they must turn from their sins and believe in Christ, everything changed. Hey, it's one thing to be a church goer and sing cool songs and listen to a sermon. It's a totally different thing to be a faithful worshiper of the Lord Jesus Christ, broken in your sins, repentant in your sins, crying out for mercy, and then wanting to be a part of the cause that wants to reach the rest of the people around here to know Jesus as Savior. Those are two totally different things. And in his hometown of Nazareth, there were a lot of people who Thought he was a great guy. Man, one of the best around here. I can only imagine the comments they make about him if they didn't really understand that he was the son of God. All of it would have been humorous, wouldn't it? Can you imagine his teacher just going, man, it's just something special about him. Because you hear teachers say that, right? He's probably well-behaved in school. Man, I, I, I can tell God's got big plans for him, right? You hear teachers say stuff like that every once in a while. Boy, were they right. Back now to Mark chapter 6. So Jesus is in his hometown, in the synagogue, teaching. They marvel at it. Then they start asking all these questions, and it ends with them not believing. They don't believe in him. I want to ask you today, do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is God and that he came to die for you? Do you believe, listen to me, that when Jesus was nailed on the cross, God took your sins and put them on him and killed him? Do you believe that Jesus died under the punishment of God for your sins? Do you believe that? 
Do you believe that when he died, they pulled him down off the cross and they buried him? And three days later, the love of God and the plan of God and the sovereign hand of God brought Jesus back to life to let everybody know, to put the world on notice, if you will, that God cannot be stopped, his plan will come to pass, and that whoever believes in him will be saved, that their sins have been dealt with in the cross, that death has been dealt with in the cross, and the devil has been dealt with in the cross. And whoever believes in him will be safe with God forever do you believe that or do you still doubt and question are you still stubborn and hard hearted you still love some of your sins and you don't want to part with them well I want to end this sermon by giving three characteristics of unbelief three characteristics of unbelief The first is, those who don't believe distract from the issue. Those who don't believe, they distract from the issue. Look at verse 2. Jesus just preached a scripture-filled, Old Testament-filled sermon in the synagogue. The people that were in the synagogue were the ones who knew the word of God. Jesus just preached that. It was outstanding. They were astonished, and here it comes. Where did he get that from? Where did he get that wisdom from? How's he do those works? How's he do those works by his hands? Instead of the truth of God coming into their heart and moving them and saying, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner, I need you, which is the proper response to understanding some truth of God, they start to they start to question. They start to distract from the issue. I know people that do that. I've had some good relationships here in Fairdale, and we've been in some good conversations, and they were, they were open to God, and they were open to church. And I said, well, you want to come? And you know what they asked next? Well, I don't think I have a dress to wear. I don't have any more suits and ties. I don't think I can come anymore. And I'm like, really? 2016, nobody cares a bit what you wear to church. I don't hear anybody making comments about what you wear to church anymore. Shorts, t-shirts, shirt, coat, tie, you wear whatever you want. Here in the church today, we've got everything in between. doesn't matter. We don't care. And yet you talk to people, and that's what they're going to say. People will distract from the issue. I hear people say, well, is it a piano? Do you have a guitar? What do you got? Or I hear people come up with other things, like, well, I've got some, got some things I'm going through. I don't know. People will distract from the issue. I remember one time I was in St. Thomas, and it was, it was a mission trip, I promise. I was talking to this guy. He was a Rastafari guy. They have a lot of those in the islands. Cool guy. I liked him a lot. We were talking, and got to talking about Jesus. And, and he said, well, but here's what I need to know. Was Jesus a Nazarite, or was he not? Because I know the New Testament says that he's from Nazareth, but I want to know if he was a Nazarite. A Nazarite is this guy in the Old Testament that kept all these things. Did you, was Jesus a Nazarite? That's what I'm trying to figure out. And I said, man, I don't know if he was a Nazarite. But let me ask you this. Have you ever sinned against him? He always asked sin. I said, well, are you going to believe in him to be forgiven of your sins? He said, well, I've got to figure out if he's a Nazarite. And I remember thinking to myself, like, man, people will distract from the issue. And you have these conversations too. You'll be talking to somebody 
who's broken in their sins, and you think that God's about to use you to talk about it, and they'll say, well, are you trying to tell me evolution isn't true? And people will distract from the issue. Folks, I want you to hear with Jesus here today that he's the only hope for you to be saved from your sins. He is God and died for your sins. He was killed on the cross. Don't be such an unbeliever thinking that you're an intellectual that's good at questioning that you distract from the issue. Now, I'm all about you being intellectual and all these questions and you need answers and seeking answers. I'm not against that at all, by all means. But don't allow it to distract you from the main issue that Jesus is the Savior of the world. Hear it plainly in John chapter 3, verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because, verse, th- verse 18, he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. At the end of the day, which could be any moment for you, when you stand before God in heaven, whether you go up or whether you go down, is whether your heart believes with an all-out surrender in Jesus Christ as crucified for your sins. God will deal with you based off of that, and he will not deal with you by your distracting issues that you continue to raise. Number one characteristic of unbelief is we distract from the issue number two we attach to the unnecessary this is very similar as number one but but different look at verse three verse three says is is not this the carpenter and this isn't that carpenter fellow isn't this the guy that built our kitchen table and this the guy that built the the wood stuff? Isn't this the son of Mary? By the way, only place in Scripture that he's recognized as the son of Mary. Perhaps they were trying to get at that he was illegitimate. You remember I just read in Luke 4, they said, in this Joseph's son, right? They knew him as Joseph's son, but this is the only place where he's the son of Mary. Maybe they're trying to dig him right now that he's illegitimate, right? They knew that he had a mom, Mary, but they knew that he didn't have a dad. And sometimes, if you're prideful, You'll look down on people because of that. This sermon isn't about illegitimate children, but church, the church should be the first people that welcome illegitimate children. You ought to love people who don't have a mom or a dad. You ought to welcome them. You ought to be doing everything you can to orient your life, to welcome them into your life. But they ask, they attach to the unnecessary, and they say, "Uh, isn't this the carpenter? Uh, Isn't this Mary's son? Uh, isn't this the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Isn't this the one whose sisters are right here? Surely this guy's not the savior of the world. I mean, we, we know him. They attach to the unnecessary. Here's the question I'm asking when I read verse 3. What does that have to do with anything? Who cares? And perhaps you've probably asked somebody to come to church with you before. And once again, they attach to the unnecessary. Oh, is that where such and such goes to church? Or is that the church that does this? Is that church does that? Or do y'all do this? We seem to get hung up on things that we ought not to be hung up on. 
What does it matter if this is Mary's son or if this is the carpenter? This is the guy who just preached the truthful message to them that has them taken back, convicted of their sins, astonished at the truth. This is the guy who has just said, the Savior of the world is here. Indeed, I am the Savior of the world. Unless you repent, you're going to die in your sins. Jesus is here, and they so don't believe that they're attaching to things that are unnecessary. Folks, you need to learn as a real Christian to let the main things be the main things, let the small things go. There's hills worth dying on, but there's a whole lot of hills not worth dying on. Don't get caught up in things that aren't necessary for you to get caught up in. This is a characteristic of unbelief. Characteristic of unbelief is distracting from the issue, attaching to the unnecessary. And then number three... A characteristic of unbelief is to attack the messenger. Attack the messenger. It says here in verse 3 that they took offense at him. They're offended by him now. They don't like it. And so what we can read into to, to these questions here is that they are knowing him as, as, a, as a family guy. They know his family, and they're wanting to say that because we know his family, there's no way that you are the Savior of the world. We don't know you to have ever sinned, but no way you're not the Savior of the world. Let me remind you, look back at chapter 3, verse 21. Do you remember that one? For me, it's just one page back. Chapter 3, verse 21, this is after he called the 12 apostles. Verse 20 says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. People are everywhere, fascinated by Jesus. Verse 21, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. You remember when I preached that passage? I said, I don't know what to do with this. It's hard to even understand. His brothers and sisters thought he was out of his mind. They knew him to be a great guy. They could not conceive that he was the Savior of the world. Folks, the more and more you read the Scriptures, the more and more you're going to be convinced that nobody will believe until God changes their heart and gives them a new heart. It is the grace of God coming into you and giving you faith as a gift. Many of you know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that it is by grace alone that we've been saved, not by works, for it is the gift of God. You know that? And what it means, gift, is it means gift. It means that you did not have faith, and then one day, by God's mercy alone, He came and handed you a present which is belief and now you believe and if you're not believing I challenge you to believe but you need to recognize that there is no influence there is no sermon there is nothing no power in the world that will cause somebody to believe other than the grace of God changing a heart Nazareth had been with him for 30 years and yet their response is Jesus's sermon about him being the savior of the world their response is distracting from the issue attaching to the unnecessary attacking the messenger and unbelief to which J.C. Ryle says unbelief is the sin that specially fills hell he that believes will not be damned, but he that does not believe will be. It is the most foolish and inconsistent of all sins. Listen to this. Unbelief makes a man refuse the plainest evidence. 
Unbelief makes a man shut his eyes against the clearest testimony and yet still believe lies. How many times have you heard somebody say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Perhaps the best, best characteristic of unbelief, I'm a pretty good person. In a few chapters, in Mark chapter 9, we'll get to this passage where a man has a son that's demon-possessed, and the, the demon is ruining the boy's life. He, he causes the boy to go in these convulsions, and the kid goes crazy, and the demons will, like, throw the boy into fire and try to burn him up, throw the boy into water and try to get him to drown. And they get Jesus there. And Jesus is like, wow, man, this is bad. How long has this been going on? They say his whole life. Jesus, wow. Jesus tells the demon to come out of the boy and to never enter him again. The demon makes one big push to try to ruin him. Then the boy lays there like he's completely dead. Everybody thinks he's dead. Jesus walks over and grabs his hand and picks him up and says, Come on, the boy's fine, completely healed. Jesus asks the dad, Do you believe? And the dad has the quote for all of us here today. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Whether it's with your family, whether it's with your health, whether it's with your attitude, whether it's with your spouse, whether it's with your enemies, whether it's with your uh, country, regardless of what it's with, you need to turn your eyes away from distracting things that are causing unbelief in you. You need to look full in at the Word of God and the Scriptures. And you need to believe on Jesus. He died for your sins. And if you will turn to him, he will save you and change your life. This is the only way to be right with God, believing. Look down at verse 6 of Mark chapter 6. Sorry, verse 5. He could do no mighty work there except that he had laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Jesus marveled because they did not believe in him. May it not be the case that you who've been coming to a church hearing the word of God won't believe. May you run to God believing in Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let's pray. God, The power of belief is there. We know that. You will save us. But the power, or rather the, the influence of unbelief, is strong as well. We see this when we look around the community and see not many people outspoken about their faith or in a school or, or at a workplace. Father, we pray like the Father in that passage in Mark 9, help our unbelief. God, I pray that our church would not be full of people who act like they're believing, but they're not really believing. God, make us believers in you who know Jesus, know what he's like. Father, thank you that you've given us the promise that whoever believes will not be condemned. They will escape the judgment. They will be forgiven of their sin. God, we pray that you would do that. In Jesus' name we pray.
Amen.